the, the miracles of the most exceptional nation in the history of the world. And I pray, parents, that we will know how important it is to be giving our children, our sons and our daughters, a knowledge of the heritage of this great country. We know that America's in grave danger, unprecedented danger, but our children and all of us need to have a love and appreciation and a knowledge, a knowledge of those who have gone before us. The price that was paid by those who carved this country out of the primeval wilderness, all seven all 3,777-plus square miles of this land was settled. Before that, it was explored, built, civilized by white Anglo-Saxon European people. And we need to know that our children should not grow up without a love and an appreciation for the heritage that we represent. And that would be true for all those who live in or were born in some other country. Through the grace of our God in heaven, those lands were settled under the providence of God. Let us pray, Father in heaven, how grateful we are that we are so privileged, so honored by the God of Abraham that he has called us as a body out of darkness. Father in heaven, when we were blind and as little children, you led us, called us, quickened us, and by grace, through faith, by Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, you have brought us to this day, and we are most humbled. Please guide us now. Holy Spirit, we know nothing as we ought to know it. And all that we do know is so inferior to what we ought to know. Please, in the name of Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit, make up for all that we lack. Please, in Christ's name, amen. You know, congregation, the Bible tells us in the words of Jesus, in the Gospel of Luke chapter 12, verse 32, he gives us this word, fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good will to give you what? The kingdom. Can we say that together? Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good will to give you the kingdom. Jesus also said in Matthew 6, 33, 
Say this with me if you know it. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added, given unto thee. Jesus also said in the Gospel of Mark, correction, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, beginning at verse 28, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Today is the Sabbath, the Holy Sabbath, and I pray that our burdens may all find peace and rest in Christ. So we turn now where we left off with the American miracle, and we're at the bottom of our worksheet, first side. And we had arrived at a time when the great American War of Independence for the future of this land had been won. And many, many souls across, across the pages of time have wondered, well, why didn't America remain a part of the British Empire? After all, they had a crown, a kingdom, a monarchy. So why did our ancestors break away from their mother, England? Their father, the Anglo-Saxon Israelites of England. So many people believe that we should have remained a monarchy, stayed under the crown. But there's a reason why America had to break away. It was prophetically baked into the cake. It was designed by the providence of God. When he promised Jacob in Genesis 35, 11, I will make of thee a nation and a company of nations. And America came out of that company of nations called the British Empire. Greatest empire in all of, of human history. If you measure all the empires of the past against the British Empire, they are like measuring David against Goliath. America came out of that mother country because... We are the great nation promised Joseph in Genesis 49, correction, 48, 19. Genesis 48, 19. So when we left off last time, we had finished fighting that war of independence. So we gained our freedom. We gained our freedom. Now what? Well... During the 
revolution or correction, correction during the War of Independence in about 1777, during that war, our founding fathers had decided since they had declared their independence from England and were now fighting a war to confirm it, they needed a plan to hold the colonies together. Thirteen little independent colonies needed some cohesive, central type of arrangement to hold them together. Or the country would have fragmented and just disintegrated and been easy prey for savage Indians or for the French, the Spanish, and all the others that wanted to con make a conquest of North America. So they came together and formed the Articles of Confederation. Many of you know a little bit about that uh, time of government. America was under the Articles of Confederation that were finally fully ratified by the last colony in 1781. So they officially became uh, what we will call they were introduced in November 1777. They were ratified in February of 1781. So you history buffs know that from 1781 all the way to the inauguration of George Washington in 1789, our government was the Articles of Confederation and perpetual union. Now, why did we not stay under the Articles of Confederation and Perpetual Union? It actually had many virtues, many, many good and strong points, but it also was very, very deficient. And there's an obvious reason why we didn't stay under the Articles of Confederation and Perpetual Union. So if you'll flip your worksheet over now, believe it or not, we will be on page two. So the first question out, top of page two, is worthy of our consideration. Let's look at it. First question, top of page two. How and why did colonial America migrate from the Articles of Confederation to the United States Constitution. The inherent weaknesses in the Articles of Confederation. The great question, church, and you know this to be true, is how do you balance the sovereignty of 13 fiercely independent, fiercely strong little colonies how do you get them to agree to any kind of a centralized governmental form that can speak for all of them? You know how difficult that might be. Well, you have to look at the long history of this country from Jamestown 1607 to the year 
1787-1781, when the Articles were finally ratified, and those colonies were reluctant to trust any kind of a centralized government. Why? Because they had just fought a war to be delivered from the iron grip of a monarchy that squeezed them to a point where they had to house the redcoats of that monarchy, feed them, care for them, and have those soldiers sleeping right inside their homes. Those colonies left the mother country because the King of England, King George III, said, I am abandoning you. You are no longer under my protection. It's like parents opening the door to their 17-year-old son and saying, see the door? The world is yours. We're done. You won't live under our rules, so go your way. And America left England not because they necessarily wanted to, because how many of you know a very small percentage of the colonial population actually were behind the war. The majority of the colonists would have been happy to stay under the monarchy, to bleed and to suffer. Only a small percentage were ready to say to George Washington, go and let's win our independence. More than half of all the signers of the Declaration of Independence were in the war. Of the 56 white Anglo-Saxons who signed the Declaration, more than half of them actually suffered and bled, and the rest of them paid a dear price. So everybody paid a price. That is, excepting for a very, very few. So when, that, when they wanted to come together under the Articles of Confederation and Perpetual Union, it was no little cakewalk for those colonists to be willing to come under any kind of a centralized government. But they were forced to do so, first of all, those colonies faced a formidable array of thousands of wild savages who dearly loved to cut their throats and drink their blood. So I'm going to dispel all those who have heard in great sorrow and sympathy why we push the Indians out of their homeland. Hey, Those Indians drank plenty of white blood before, the, before they surrendered and abandoned. And if you, know their, if you knew their lifestyle, you would know that they imbibed in every form of vice that 
vile forms of immorality you can think about. So I'm not, I'm not an Indian person. I'm going to join that crowd of Americans back in the late 1700s and early 1800s who were watching more than 1,500 white men and women perish, have their scalps removed to hang in the wigwams. Need to read Scalp Dance, it's in the bookstore. So, not a favorite of American Indian lore. But I'm not trying to tell you what to believe. Okay, now, the Articles of the Confederation had some good points. And this is not our goal today to dissect the Articles. However, they could declare war under the Articles. They could make treaties. Remember, you can't live isolated as newly formed free colonies emancipated from Britain because the eyes of the French, the Spanish, powerful, powerful nations would dearly love to have come and gobbled up those 13 colonies. And the French already had people here and they could have easily done it, and so did the Spanish have to a lesser degree. So those 13 colonies were in, they were without a choice. They had to come together. Now they could tax, but only on the buildings, not the land itself. So they were really weak. They could raise an army if they could convince people to support it. But they had no real power. That's the Articles of Confederation set up a weak central government. And in many ways, that's, that had its good points. Because it, retain, it allowed the 13 colonies to retain their sovereignty in a very succinct and special way. But we're going to move on quickly now to why they moved from the Articles of Confederation to the United States Constitution. So we're at the top of page two in our outline. And let's, I want to thank the boys and girls here who are really listening and getting educated here. Let's go to point two, drafting the United States Constitution. When the colonists came to the realization that the articles are not going to work, that America is floundering for lack of central unity under the articles, and 13 fiercely independent little countries Every one of those colonies was a little country by itself. If they don't get their act together, as Ben Franklin said, gentlemen, we either stay together, come together, and hang together, or we hang separately. 
that was wise old Ben Franklin. So let's move on and let's look at our worksheet. Drafting the U.S. Constitution, delegates gathered in Philadelphia, PA, that's Pennsylvania, on May 14, 1787, not to write a new constitution, but to revive, re, correction, resi, re, revive, uh, revise, thank you, revise the old articles, make them better. You know the idea, good, better, best, never let it rest, till good is better and better is best. Well, they came together to, to make the articles better. But in the process of trying to work through that, they came to the realization that it was easier to just take the best out of the articles and start brand new and build a whole new type of government called the Constitution of the United States of America. So let's read. Delegates gathered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 1787, to revise the Articles. And finally, by May 25, 1787, historic year, the, of the 70 delegates eligible to come from all 13 little independent republics, out of 70, how many finally came? Well, 55 fill in the blank. The 55 were eligible to attend. So 55 delegates gathered. And how many remained through that hot, sticky, humid summer without air conditioning to write the longest, old, correction, the oldest constitution of any major nation still standing on the earth. Now listen, church, hold on. Do you know that the constitution of the United States is the oldest constitution of any major nation under heaven today? Moreover, it has been modeled by more countries than any other single model of government ever devised by human mind. That's a big statement. Do you know that in our generation, more disrespect, more scorn has been thrown upon our Constitution and by those who wrote it than any generation of Americans who have, who have ever lived? So I'd like to go on record today in saying that all my adult life, from the 1960s, 70s, 80s, 90s, through to this present day, I have been an ardent defender of our founding fathers and the United States Constitution as written. And I intend all the way to my last breath to be an ardent believer in America and the Constitution and the Founding Fathers and the fact that they were all white and Christian without apologies and without 
any retreat from my position. So having said that, let's go back. 55 delegates gathered, 55 delegates gathered, and 39, fill in the blank, young people, 39 continued to finally ratify and sign that Constitution at the end of a hot, humid, sticky summer in Philadelphia, PA. How many have been to Philadelphia? Okay. There's, a, there's more history tucked away in that city than any other city in America, I, I will tell you. Now, three of those delegates eligible to sign and ratify the Constitution, but declined. Now, of the delegates, of the 55 delegates that gathered, some of them did not sign because they feared too much power had been accorded to the central government. Patrick Henry would not attend, the, he would not attend as a delegate, though he was eligible. He said, I smell a rat. And he didn't go. But there were some other very distinguished Americans. In fact, the man who really, really was behind the writing of the Bill of Rights and who inspired James Madison to put it into written form, was George Mason, who also refused to have anything to do with the Constitution. He washed his hands, said, you're building too much of a, the, the central government you're creating is too, much of a, is too much of a stretch for me to handle. I see a monster arriving somewhere down the line. And then there was another one by the name of Elbridge Gary, who also was well-known, who refused to sign on to the Constitution. Now, Ben Franklin, at the convention at age 81, was the eldest member. And Jonathan Dayton, at 26, was the youngest. So, do we have anyone that's 26 here today? Any, any of the men that are 26? Okay, I don't see any. All right. So, Jonathan Dayton at 26 was the youngest. Now, when the Constitution is underway, church, there's lots and lots of things happening. In fact, if we went into detail on the Constitutional Convention, which was the, the year that it was drafted, was a very warm, hot summer. Now, you can imagine what it was like to sit in a big building without insulation and no air conditioning to write a Constitution. Now, there's an old saying, if you've never enjoyed something, you won't miss it. Well, those guys had never enjoyed air conditioning, so they didn't know what they were missing. But I'll guarantee you it was filled with flies, because they had to keep the windows open. And it was hot. And it was humid. 
and it was anything but pleasant. All summer long, those men toiled to write a constitution. And you know when you're hot and sweaty, it's not easy to think clear. So hats off to those guys because they were hard at it throughout that summer. And uh, it's important for us to know that. Now, there is a verse of Scripture in your Bible that lies there in a very, very formal sort of way. And you can read the prophet Isaiah and miss this verse every time you read through the book if you're not careful. It's Isaiah 33, 22. And it's a marvelous, the marvelous little verse. It says, The Lord Jehovah is our judge. He is our judge. He is our lawgiver. He is our king. That is the triunity of Trinity of government. You have the executive, the judicial, and the legislative. All three branches of government are there in that verse. And that is important for us to keep in mind because that is the pattern of government, the model that God gave Israel at Mount Sinai. We'll look at that in a moment. But let's go forward now and remember that I'm on, still on number two. There were two Americans, Samuel Adams and John Hancock. Now, you know John Hancock was the first signature on what, what great document? Declaration of Independence. And he signed his name in such bold letters that King George would choke when he found it. I'm sure he did. So John Hancock, when it says, sign your, sign your Jan, John Hancock here on this document, they want your name. And they don't want it so small you can't read it. Okay. Now, why is Sam Adams and John Hancock, why have I inserted them when there's so much else to insert in this little drafted piece of paper? Well, it's because they both worked tirelessly to oppose the ratification of the Constitution. Those two guys went on their stump, their soapbox, and they tried to convince every person living in Massachusetts don't you dare ratify this Constitution. It is a danger to the future of our, of our colonies. How in the world did Massachusetts ever survive? Sam Adams and John Hancock were two of the most revered loved, respected, honored men that had ever walked the soil of Massachusetts. So how would the folks 
of Massachusetts ever go against them. Well, that's because another famous guy from Massachusetts that made a midnight ride, you know his name, Paul Revere, who rode from house to house with the warning, the British are coming, the British are coming. Sorry, there's no Facebook platform. No social media. So Paul Revere had to go knocking at doors in the middle of the night. Get your musket. Get your ammunition, boys. There's going to be a fight. Paul Revere led a campaign to sign the Constitution or hang separately as individual states and let the French and the Spanish decide who's going to own North America. So I just mentioned that. Now, we mentioned Ben Franklin. He was the oldest guy there, 81. And uh, he's famous for a lot of things, folks. And it would be very easy to step aside here today and finish the rest of the morning with Ben Franklin. But we cannot do that. So I, I'm going to give you three examples of why we need to remember Ben Franklin. First of all, Benjamin Franklin is the guy that inspired the colonists at the delegates at the Constitutional Convention. He said, gentlemen, look, we've been here for several days, actually a few weeks, and they had gotten nowhere in the hot, humid, temperature swatting flies in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. So I quote now from Ben Franklin, as history has recorded it. Gentlemen, the small progress we have made after four or five weeks of close attendance and continual, continual reasoning with, with each other, our different sentiments on almost every question, several of the last producing as many no's as yeses, that's no's as eyes, is methinks a melancholy proof of the imperfection of human understanding. So he gives a lecture on their failure to have the wisdom to do the job at hand. And then he says, this is quite a lengthy little speech he gave, and I quote, In this situation of this assembly, groping as it were in the dark to find political truth, and scarce able to distinguish it when presented to us, how has it happened, sirs, that we have not hitherto once thought of humbly applying to the Father of lights to illuminate our understanding? In the beginning of the contest, he met the War of Independence with Great Britain, when we were sensible of the great danger, we had daily prayer in this room for divine protection. Our prayers, sirs, were heard. 
and they were graciously answered. Then he goes on to describe how God answered the prayers made in Philadelphia during the war. He says then, quote, I have lived, sirs, a long time. And the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it possible that an empire can rise without the aid of God? We have been assured, sirs, in the sacred writings that accept the Lord, build the house, they labor in vain to build it. I firmly believe this, and I also believe that without His concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of the Tower of Babel. We shall be divided by our little partial local interest. Our projects will be confounded. And we ourselves shall become a reproach and a byword down through future ages. And what is worse, mankind may hereafter from this unfortunate incident, instance, despair of governments by human wisdom and leave it to chance, to war, to conquest, to whatever happens. I therefore, still quoting Ben, beg leave to move that henceforth prayers imploring the assistance of heaven and its blessings on our deliberation be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed with any business. And that one or more of the clergy of this city be requested to officiate in those prayers to God Almighty. Ben Franklin. So they were spoken to by uh, the oldest man at the, at the assembly. He called them to prayer. I don't have a record of the prayers that were uttered during that summer. They might still be in existence. I don't know. Now, Ben Franklin is also known, and I'm actually now, I'm under number, well, I'm under Ben Franklin's famous for many things. So he's famous for the call to prayer. And number two, the wife of the mayor of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, when the Constitution was finished, asked Benjamin Franklin, Mr. Franklin, what have you given us? What kind of a government have you given us? Now, some of you know the answer. Ben Franklin said, I have given you a republic if you can keep it. Words of Ben Franklin. Number three, Ben Franklin is also very much noted for his warning to the delegates to the Constitution gathered to write the famous document. 
Now, some of you are familiar with Washington, uh, correction, with Ben Franklin's prophecy. How many? How many know the prophecy of Ben Franklin? How many have heard about it? Okay, now look around. What was the prophetic <clears throat> prophecy given by Ben Franklin? This is important, church. Please listen closely. <clears throat> now, those who oppose American founding fathers and those who have rewritten our history call this prophecy Franklin's forgery. Much like Martin Luther's treatise titled The Jews and Their Lies, the Lutheran Church now denies that Martin Luther ever wrote it. You know that. But history documents him as the author of the little book called The Jews and Their Lies. So here is Franklin's prophecy, and I will quote from Mr. Ben Franklin. So here we are. Boys and girls, are you listening? I see two or three are not. They're visiting. Pay attention, young people. You only pass this way one time. Quote, there is a great danger for the United States of America. This great danger is the Jew. Gentlemen in every land they have settled, they have depressed the moral level and lowered the degree of commercial honesty. They have remained apart and unassimilated, oppressed. They attempt to strangle the nation financially, as in the case of Portugal and Spain. For more than 1,700 years, they have lamented their sorrowful woe. Correction, sorrowful fate. Namely, that they have been driven out of their motherland. But gentlemen, if the civilized world today should have given them back their property, they would immediately find pressing reason for not returning there. Why? Because they are vampires, and vampires cannot live on other vampires. They cannot live among themselves. They must live among the Christians and others who do not belong to their race. If they are not expelled from these United States by this Constitution, within less than 100 years, they will stream into this country in such numbers that they shall rule and destroy us and change our form of government for which we Americans shed our blood sacrificed our lives, our property, and our personal freedom. If the Jews are not excluded within 200 years, our children will be working in the field to feed the Jews while they remain in the counting houses, gleefully rubbing their hands together. 
I warn you, gentlemen, if you do not exclude the Jews forever, your children and your children's children will curse you in their graves, for their ideas are not those of Americans even when they lived among us for ten generations. The leopard cannot change his spots. The Jews are a danger to this land and if they are allowed to enter, they will imperil our institutions. They should be excluded from this Constitution. End of quote. The Franklin prophecy, now in history revised, called the Franklin forgery. And I might add that the protocols printed in the Dearborn Independent by Henry Ford Sr., printed in black and white and made a part of the Dearborn Independent publication financed by Henry Ford Sr., all of the intelligentsia of this country now call the protocols a forgery. And they say that Henry Ford Sr.'s signature was a forgery. So you know how they're revising history. And so we move on in our outline. The model of our government founded in the Bible, found in the Bible was actually examined by the Founding Fathers. Now, here's what we all need to know. Many of the Founding Fathers that attended the Constitutional Convention are in their 30s. Jonathan Dayton was 26 years old. There's a lot of young, youthful men in that, in that convention. But they were well-educated. They had examined the government. They examined the Greek states of Athens and other Greek colonies. They had examined almost every model of government you could imagine. So they looked and they looked tirelessly of a model of government to pattern the Constitution after. They also looked in a book called the Bible. Because you've already concluded, if you listen carefully, that Ben Franklin knew his Bible. So they were, not, they were not going to miss examining the foundations of government as articulated in Scripture. So they went back to your ancestrals, if you are Israelites, boys and girls, some of you are still talking, you're not listening, because you can't talk and listen at the same time. So what happened then was the fact that they decided to open their Bibles and look at ancient Israel. So where would that take them? Well, that would take them to the book of Exodus chapter 19. When God called Israel out of Egypt, crossed the Red Sea, into the Sinai Desert, he gave them 
a model of government. It's found in Exodus 19, beginning in verse 3. And Moses went up unto God. I'm in Exodus 19, 3. Moses went up unto God, and the Lord God called unto, me out, called unto him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, how I bear you on eagles' wings. Remember, the eagle is inscribed in our great seal. How I bear you on eagles' wings and bore you unto myself. Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you're going to be a special people unto me above all other people. And ye shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak to the children of Israel. And the Bible says, Moses called for the elders of the people. Elders of the people. Representatives. He called for the elders of the people and laid before their faces all the words which the Lord God Jehovah had given and commanded him. And the people gathered themselves together and received the words of Jehovah God spoken unto them and said, We will do what God asks. We'll sign on to it. It was consent of the governed. Hold on to that thought. No government in history before ancient Israel had ever asked the people of their voluntary consent, the governed to give their consent to be governed. That was breaking ground in all of human history. Because history tells us government's always been from the top down. Now, God starts from the bottom up. So he brings all the people under covenant. Now, when he gave Israel this model of government, good heavens, about to run out of time. When he gave Israel this government, folks, this was an amazing thing because he gave them Firstly, in Exodus 20, a bill of rights. Except they're God's rights from the people. Not man's rights, God's rights. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. That's a right we owe to who? God, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Who's that honoring? These are God's rights. 
Now, our Constitution is going to have a Bill of Rights. We'll get to that. But they're defining our rights under government. The Bible begins with God's rights to those who will live by His rules. Quite a contrast, isn't it? Now, you know that the last part of the Ten Commandments are the rights God gives to you. Thou shalt not steal your neighbor's property. You cannot covet your neighbor's house, his wife, no matter how pretty, no matter how shapely. Don't covet your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's ox or his donkey, his car, whatever else he owns. So God gave Israel in that perfect model a government of God's rights, man's rights. And then he laid out the statutes and the judgments. Chapters Exodus 21, 22, 23, and we come to the end of chapter 24. And God says, here is the government, the model I give you. Do you want to ratify it? Again, we come back to the consent of the governed. So open your Bibles and we'll close with this today. Exodus 24, verse 3. Exodus 24, 3. Here is the ratification process. The choice Israel was given. To ratify or not ratify. The American colonies were given a choice. Ratify or don't ratify this Constitution. So God tells Israel in Exodus 24, verse 3, And Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments, and all the people answered with one voice and said, What did they say? Help me. All, that, all the words that the Lord has said, We will we will do. That's consent of the governed. We will do. They're being asked, do you want to ratify this Constitution? And then the, the Bible goes on to say, and Moses wrote all the words of the Lord, this Constitution. And what else did he do? He rose up early in the morning, so don't sleep late. He rose up early in the morning and built an altar under the hill. Twelve tribes, according to the twelve tribes of the Chinese. No, 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 no. Twelve tribes of Israel. Twelve tribes of Israel. Then what did he do? He sent young men of the children of Israel, which offered burnt offerings and sacrifice, peace offerings of oxen unto the Lord. And Moses took the blood, and what did he do? Put half the blood in the basins, half the body sprinkled on the altar. Every church should have an altar. You have a building where you're worshiping God, you don't have an altar. You do not have a lawful place to worship. 
Worship cannot take place without an altar. Inside that altar that you're looking at are stones, unhewn stones. That's the true altar inside that wooden frame. So take half the blood, put it in basins, half the blood and sprinkle it on the altar. And Moses took the book of the covenant. Our Israelite ancestors apparently could read and write. Moses took the book of the covenant. He, he took the book of the covenant and read in the audience of the people. And they said, consent of the governed. And they said what? All the words that thou hast said, we will do and be obedient. They voluntarily said we not only accept the words of the Constitution you're giving us, but we will be obedient to this Constitution, to this covenant. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant, which the Lord God hath made with you, Concerning all these words, Constitution ratified. Founding fathers read that great document. So they called for the ratification of the United States Constitution. And that ratification process went from se- late 1770, correction, late 1787, all the way through 1789. America weighed in the balance the words of the Constitution. It hung by a fiber because Patrick Henry said, no, no, no. And Samuel Adams said no. John Hancock said no. Thomas Jefferson is way off across the ocean representing us in France. John Adams is across the Atlantic Atlantic representing us in England. And those were the two of the most two of the most powerful advocates of the Constitution that were not there to help help defend and debate for it. So how in the world did the Constitution ever survive? And we'll leave it at that. Now in closing today, folks, may I encourage all of us to leave here today and thank God for our heritage. Thank God to be an American, free, white, and Christian. And God help us to remain White, we're in danger of not remaining white. And we're certainly not secure in being free. And even our Christianity is being watered down and unrecognizable. If this congregation can remain free, white, and Christian, it'll be 
by Christ alone, grace alone, Christ alone, faith alone, sola scriptura alone, to the glory of God alone, let's be standing.